Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 15th, 2021. Greetings from uh, a very sunny San Francisco. I'm not sure what the weather is like in the rest of the world, but it's beautiful here, particularly where I live, uh, near the Haight-Ashbury. The sun is shining and the Pacific Ocean is beckoning. Back, I've lived in San Francisco for a while. Uh, back in, 90, in the early 90s, 91, 92, I lived on the corner of Bush and Baker Street in Lower Pacific Heights. <laughs> People familiar with San Francisco will know that corner. Um, it's a nice corner, uh, much nicer now. The homes, as everything in San Francisco, have gone up dramatically. But of course, living on the corner of Bush and Baker Street in 1991 had more than um, residential value. It also reflected the reality of the global order because there were two men who ran the world back in 1991, James Baker, uh, who was the Secretary of State, and uh, George H.W. Um, Bush, who was the American president back then. Um, and here we have a photo of them with the third B, Barbara Bush, uh, all very close. And of course, James Baker remained George Bush's closest friend and vice versa until uh, uh, G.W. Bush's uh, death uh, very recently. Uh, we've done a show on Peter uh, on uh, on uh, James Baker recently. Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, two of America's best journalists, uh, wrote a book about Baker, which they called "The Man Who Ran Washington." He was the consummate inside politician, uh, Machiavellian, and all the best and perhaps some of the worst qualities. A man uh, brilliant at politics, um, and his partner, George H. Bush, um, has a new book out as well, not by him, of course, but about him. It's called The Man I Knew, and it's by his longtime um, assistant and close friend, uh, chief of staff, actually, um, Gene Baker. Uh, not Gene Baker. That was a, a Freudian error. Gene Becker. <laughs> Too many Bs on this show. Baker, Bush, Becker. Uh, I'm thrilled that Jean Becker is joining us from her home in uh, Houston, in Texas. Uh, Jean, the man I knew, that seems to somehow capture the spirit of George H.W. Bush in the way in which the man who ran Washington captures the spirit of James Baker. Is that fair? I, I, that's absolutely fair. And I want to credit my great editor, Sean Desmond at 12, Andrew, for coming up with that title. He was giving me advice on, on, on how he, his vision for this book. And he said, he said, Gene, make this your story. Like, talk to us about what happens behind the scenes in the life in the office of a, of a former president. He said that book's never been written before. And in that conversation, Sean literally said, I want you to write about the man you knew. 
So what a great gift to me as a writer to be told that because I just wrote this book from the heart. It just yeah, and it's it's. Uh, I've been reading the book all morning, Jean. Didn't make me cry because I'm a hard person to make cry. But it's a, it's, a, <laughs> it's a beautifully written book and very heartfelt. You clearly had a, an intensely close friendship with uh, with your boss, and I don't think any. I don't think it's news to anyone that he was a very decent man. The subtitle of your book is the amazing story of George H. W. Bush's post presidency. This is, in contrast to the Glacier uh, Baker book, this is not a political book. This is a book about uh, uh, George H.W. Bush's post-presidency. And you don't actually say it, but I think in a sense, perhaps you imply that these were his best years after he lost the presidency to Bill Clinton in 1992. I'm not sure he would. There would probably be people who would disagree that they were necessarily his best years. Happiest um, years, perhaps. perhaps. His, I'm sorry, say that again. Happiest years. Happiest years. You know, I what the thing that the, the, the secondary title of the book, where that comes from, is he lost the election in 1992. And the first year out of office, 1993, was a tough year. He really spent that year, Andrew, sort of licking his wounds and... And it hurt, it, it, it hurt him to lose that election. As he told a friend years later, he said, I was fired by the American people. But as he did so many other times in his life, when he was shot down in World War II, he and Mrs. Bush lost a three-year-old to leukemia, their three-year-old daughter, Robin. He lost a number of political races. He sort of dusted himself off and got on with life. And when he died, about 25 years after losing the White House, he truly died an icon. The whole world, I, the, I know I'm not, I'm not uh, objective oh when it comes to him, but he was truly revered and respected. And so this is the story of how you can come from one of the worst moments of your life to dying an icon. One of the most touching um sections in the book gene is when you describe both his first and his last words to you perhaps you can remind our audience of that <laughs> um well i do believe his first words to me i'm pretty sure i remember this correctly i was a newspaper reporter for uh, usa today covering the 1988 election the year he was elected and i was traveling with then vice president bush and i've been pestering the press staff all day for an interview. And finally, they were on our way back to DC after a very long day. And they came back to the the back of the plane, of the vice president's plane and said, okay, you have 10 minutes with the vice president. And I went and sat across from him and he was exhausted. I think a little grumpy that he had to talk I can to him. I mean, and to get to get him exhausted required a lot of work because this oh, was a guy who had more energy than the rest of the country put together, right? That's a very perceptive thing to say. The man never ran out of energy. But I sat down across from him and he looked at me and he said, okay, what do you got? That was the first thing he ever said to me. The last thing was a couple hours before he died. Um, he was at home and I was the only one in his room at that moment in time. People had been coming 
in and out all day, including Secretary Baker. Secretary Baker had been there twice that day. He came back later. He was there when he died. Was Family, that the time when he smuggled some um, alcohol in? <laughs> that was to the hospital. He used to smuggle him vodka into Methodist Hospital here, in, which it was a major no-no. But, you know, the two men, they, they became friends over martinis. What can you say? Um, anyway, the evening President Bush, he was he was dying. He literally was dying. And I'm just holding his hand, just making small talk, talking about the news of the day. His eyes were closed. And all of a sudden, I did this. <coughs> I had a little tickle in my throat. And his eyes flew open. And he looked at me, squeezed my hand, and he said, Gene, are you okay? It's the last thing he ever said to me. And, you know, I, I felt like... I'm probably reading too much into this, but I love those were his last words because he was always concerned about the other guy. And I love that he was worried about my little cough and he was dying. What's interesting about that occurs to me, at least about G.W. Bush, particularly in contrast with Bill Clinton, is that never came across. He wasn't a natural politician. He wasn't particularly skilled at um, revealing this genuine humanity. Whereas Bill Clinton, my guess is he was the reverse. He always seemed more humane than he actually was. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on the last part about President Clinton. You know, somebody just the other day asked me, I was telling them in another interview that one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is because I, I wanted people to get to know this amazing man that I knew, this personable, uh, humble, funny extrovert who loved people and loved life. And, and the question was, who, why didn't that get out more? Why, if people knew this George Bush, he might've been reelected in 90, 1992. And they asked me who I'd blame for that. Whose fault was it that that side of President Bush never got out? Well, you know what? It was his fault. It was his fault. It, that World War II generation, God loved them. They didn't, they came home from the war they didn't talk about the war. They didn't talk that much about themselves. They just sort of got on with life. Do you think um, another person, I, I take your point about George Bush not being, a, a, we, when I keep on mentioning George Bush, we know which George Bush I'm yes, talking about. We know that he wasn't a self-promoter and he uh -oh. came from that greatest generation. But might we also look at his father, Prescott S. Bush, of course, a senator, and that Bush himself grew up in a fairly strict um, mm -hmm. establishment New England family. Of course, he reinvented himself. Uh, uh, Baker says um, that he was a Texan by choice. I never really believed that uh, George H.W. Bush ever genuinely became a Texan. Uh, but there's something very aristocratic in an American sense about uh, uh, George H.W. Bush in, in, a, in both the best and perhaps some of the worst qualities of the American aristocracy. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to race to the end of the book <coughs> quickly to tell you I mean, you're wrong about the Texas part of it. And I, he was frustrated a lot. I think that people didn't believe that he truly was a Texan at heart. So he died November 30th, 2018. 
were in Kennebunkport, Maine, which he loved. He loved Kennebunkport. He'd gone there every summer of his life, except for the year he was uh, in a pilot, a Navy pilot during World War II. It's about Labor Day of 2018, and the doctors, both in Maine and Houston, had warned us that they did not think he would survive the four-hour flight back to Houston. So his medical aide, Evan Cicely, and I sat down with him, and we we were we we asked him if he just wanted to stay in Maine for the fall and see the leaves turn. We'd stay till Thanksgiving. And even at that point, Andrew, he just, he was so funny. He cut to the chase and he said, are you two asking me where I want to die? And we said, yes, yes. That's exactly what we're trying to do. He says, I want to go home. Take me do back. Think perhaps one reason why he liked to think of Texas as his home, and I, again, I, it's not for me to question where he really is from, <laughs> is that he came to Texas to invent or reinvent himself and that's where he established some distance with his origins with his father and really built both a successful career as a businessman and then as a politician he came to texas right out of college so i i would not use the word reinvent he was really just it was a bold move though i mean most kids who graduated from yale with a senator father didn't end up in texas back especially in the 1940s it was a bold move and he had a very safe job waiting for him on wall street and, and this is not in this book because this predates this book but uh it's in several other books including the book of letters we did uh called all the best when he was shot down in world war ii and captured i mean not captured rescued by a u.s submarine he stood watch at night when the sub would surface the captured pilots, their job, I mean, the rescued pilots, I kind of quit using the word captured. Their job was to stand watch at night. And President Bush talked about that experience, that it lasted a month, every single night, standing watch on that submarine and looking at the big wide open sky. He knew that he wanted to do something big with his life. And he moved to Texas. You're right. It was a very bold move. Uh, and it sort of, you know, that was just him. He liked, he was a big idea man, big idea man. And he was a remarkable partner. I mean, one of the things that comes out of your book, and I don't think this will be news to anyone, is how close, how intimate he he was with his wife many, many years, Barbara Bush. You tell her, one anecdote in the book that uh, even when the two of them were getting older and it was more of a struggle perhaps to sleep in the same room, he never wanted to be apart from her. (laughs) I'm not sure if I read it in your book, but uh, I I remember another anecdote uh, about him was when he was flying planes in in the Second World War, uh, he wrote her name on his plane. He did. Uh, Their marriage is a remarkable legacy, isn't it? It is. They were married for 73 years and they were madly in love till the very end. And you're right. It was, you read in my book, the part, I was the one who suggested that maybe they should sleep in separate bedrooms because they both kept complaining to me how much the other one snored. And I finally said to him one day, I said, you know what, sir, getting a good night's sleep is so important to your health. I think maybe you two need to think about not sleeping together. I said, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but she says the same about you. 
And he said, never, never can I not sleep in the same bed with her. He says, I have to be able to reach out during the night and take her hand and know she's there. I mean, that's just about the sweetest thing you can say about someone you've been married to for 73 years. Yeah, I think if I'm, if, if I'm, uh, I hope I'll be doing the same after 73 years with my wife. Um, <laughs> Jean, your book is full of wonderfully entertaining and, and I guess in some ways revealing anecdotes. Um, it's got this great story about the Kardashians. I never expected the Kardashians to pop up in a, in a, in a book about uh, George H.W. Bush, but he didn't know who they were, or he, right? He didn't, he didn't know. I, I love that you asked me that. I think I write about this in the part of the book where I talked about there was absolutely nothing he and I didn't talk about. We talked about death and dying. We talked baseball. We talked politics. And he felt, we both felt very comfortable with each other bringing everything up. So one day he called me into his office and he says, Gene, I have to ask you something. He says, what is a Kardashian? I keep hearing that word and I have no idea what a Kardashian is. And I'm hoping you can explain it to me. And I have to tell you, I just watched Kim Kardashian host Saturday Night Live last weekend. I thought she was fabulous for this reason. One of the things I love about George, loved about George Bush is his self-deprecating sense of humor. And she was very funny because she kept making fun of herself and the yeah. whole Kardashian image. And I thought, good for her. And uh, I hope she would laugh if she knew that George Bush once asked me what a Kardashian was. I'm sure she would. You mentioned baseball. Um... George H.W. Bush had a, a lifelong love of baseball. You, you mentioned in the book a number of times he was close with the owner of the Houston Astros. Um, and you got a, a hilarious anecdote. Um, we're not very happy, as you can guess, out here in San Francisco this morning, given um, what happened last night uh, between the Dodgers and, 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 and the Giants. And uh, Albert Pujols is on the, the Dodgers' side. And, and it seems as if Fat Albert was the was the subject of your your one and only argument with uh, George Bush. Well, first of all, I feel your pain. Everyone in San Francisco, the Dodgers beat the Cardinals in the wild card game, and I didn't think they would get past the Giants. So I'm really, really sorry. So Albert Pujols was the subject of one of our bigger fights, which I know seems a little odd, but when he was with the Cardinals. I once read this article about him. He was at the height of his game and he was breaking every record there was. And the writer of this particular article said that if Albert Pujols stayed healthy, it's possible he would go down as the best hitter to every, ever play the game, that his stats might be the best since, you know, the Babe Bruce and the Ted Williams, which is key. So I'm at a Cardinal Astros game with President Bush. Pujols hits a towering home run. And while we're watching him run around the bases, I tell President Bush, we might be watching the best hitter who ever played the game, sir. Oh, my God. He, it just made him furious because he and Ted Williams were friends. They were personal friends. He said, really? Seriously? You really think that? I says, well, yeah, I just read this today. And he said, has he ever hit 401 or 402? I can't remember what Ted Williams hit, but I think the one and only hitter to ever hit over 400 
for the season. And he never forgot it. I mean, years later, people like James Baker would come up to me and say, oh, my God, did you really tell President Bush that Albert Pujols was a better player than Ted Williams? I said, how do you know that? He told me on the golf course today. He says, do you want to hear the one dumb thing Gene Becker said to me? <laughs> Whatever. Well, we can blame we can blame the Dodgers maybe for that. We um, blame the Dodgers, yeah. Gene, your book is, as I said, very entertaining and heartwarming, but it also has a lot of interesting political stories. I was particularly intrigued by uh, the, the the conversation, the telephone conversation, which you're guessing uh, uh, George H.W. Bush had with Al Gore after the disputed election between Gore and uh, and Bush Jr. Tell us well, about think, the, the background to that and what you surmise happened between the two men. So it is 2000 and most Americans remember what happened in the 2000 election. There had to be a recount in Florida because the vote was so incredibly close. And eventually the case, the, the recount went to the U.S. Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ruled uh, in favor of the George W. Bush campaign, which shut down the recount, which made George W. the president-elect of the United States. That ruling came late one evening and it was the next day that Al Gore gave his official, Vice President Gore gave his official concession speech to the nation. And President Bush called me the minute the speech was over. It was a very gracious speech. And President Bush called me and he said, Gene, I would like to get Al Gore on the phone. I want to talk to the vice president. And I said, I don't think that's a good idea. I said, I'm thinking the last person he needs to talk to tonight, sir, is anyone named Bush, but you know, particularly George Bush. I don't think he needs, I'm not sure it's, you should call him. And he completely disagreed with me, and he was right. He said, Gene, I know how he feels. I know what he's feeling right now. I have been where he is. I know what it feels like to lose an election. And he said, I'm not calling him because I'm George W. Bush's father. I'm calling him because I want to thank him for the speech he just gave which is going to go a long way toward healing the nation and to tell him I've been, I've been where you are right now. So, you know what, Andrew, he was right. And I told him the best way to get hold of the vice president is through the white house switchboard. He was thrilled by that thought. He said, of course, he cut me out of the middle. He says, I'm calling the white house. I want to, I'd like to talk to the operators anyway. And, you know, vice president Gore leaked that phone call to the New York Times in the next a few months later, I think, I think the call meant a lot to him, and uh, it it's it, that's just classic George Bush though. Such a great night for the Bush family, but he was thinking of Al Gore and the pain that he was feeling. One person who would never have made that call, I can say for sure, is um, Donald Trump. Uh, and I, I think that one of the reasons why George H.W. Bush has become, uh, in his last years and after his death, this iconic figure in American culture and politics is because of the contrast with, uh, with, with Trump. 
Um, I'm less interested in his opinion on Trump. I know that the Bush family weren't keen on him for many different reasons. But does he represent a completely, in your mind, you spent a lot of time with the guy, a completely different cultural, political, ideological world within the Republican Party, a world which seems to be going away now, Gene? I've been trying very hard when talking about the book to stay out of current politics. So instead of really answering your question, I'm just going to share with you something that I think is very telling. This book came out, The Man I Knew came out June 1st. It is now October 15th. And my editor called me the other day. It's been a short amount of time, one week, on the New York Times bestseller list. Congratulations. That's more than most people spend on the New York Times. Just one week. That was a one and done. Well, I'll take that. Well, most of us will take that. (laughs) And that was back in June. That was right after it came back. But my editor called me a couple weeks ago and he said, Gene, this book has the longest legs of almost any book we've ever done. And he said, a book like this, usually, you know, comes out and after four to six weeks, it sort of fades away. And just like you inviting me to have this conversation now, for which I'm very grateful, very grateful to you, I have a full schedule between now and Thanksgiving, either virtual or on the road. And this book is still selling really well. And again, the author isn't famous. The subject is not controversial. It is not a tell-all book. I think it's really telling that people, there just seems to be a hunger right now for a book about a man who really believed in a kinder, gentler America. I'm becoming a little obsessed, Andrew, with the never-ending book tour. And these invitations are coming from all over the country. I got an invitation to come to California. And this is COVID. Will you wait till COVID goes away? Then you'll be on the road the whole time, Gene. Well, my editor is is surprised. And when I think about it, I'm thinking, you know what? They may not be talking about this book on CNN or Fox or MSNBC every day right now. They're not talking about it at all. But I'm getting invitations from every corner of the country. Come talk to us about this book. They, I think they miss what he represented. He was, I, you know, I, I've never met him, but uh, he clearly was a decent man. But even George H.W. Bush wasn't, you know, in his later years, wasn't without his controversies. There was a, a controversy. Three women accused him of, of, and I'm quoting from a headline here, of groping uh, in 2017. Of course, you don't talk about this. A- any comment on that, Gene? I mean, were there, were there rumors, scandals? I do uh, p- political I, political debts being paid in these times. I do talk about the book. I do talk about this in the book just a little bit. It was the worst couple of weeks as my being as chief of staff. Um, you know the the difference. The media. So a number of women came out, and uh, I took it very seriously. And one of the first things I did is I contacted every single one of his personal aides, like every president and former president, he always had what's called the bag man who traveled with him and was pretty well with him 24 seven. And I went all the way back to White House days. I contacted all of his personal aides and I said, is there something here I need to know? 
And the answer was a resounding, absolutely not. We never saw any, we never saw any inappropriate behavior. And the complaints, Andrew, came, none of them came from women who knew him. They all came from people who had met him for the most part in a photo receiving line. And for the most part, I think except for one, they all came after he was in a wheelchair. And when I was talking to President Bush, trying to talk to him about it, and he was so hurt and so confused about all of it. And he just, he had Parkinson's disease which his doctors also said could have been part of it. And I talk about this a little bit in the book, but I, I talked to the media, I talked to the folks, particularly at CNN. And I said, he does, he's not a part of the story. He's not, he does not belong in the same sentence as Harvey Weinstein. And they, the, the head of CNN, Jeff Zucker emailed me and said, you know what? You're absolutely right. And that was, that was the end of it. It, it went away, and as it should have. Jean, um, a few months ago, we had Richard Lider on the show. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. He has a I'm book uh, called Who Do You Want to Be When You Grow Old? And it's a wonderful book about aging. I thought of this book when I was reading your book. It seems as if your book is about a man who who aged in the best way possible. Is Is that perhaps one of the conclusions we can draw from your book, The Man I Knew? He absolutely did. He, he, uh, he stayed young at heart until the day he died. Unfortunately, his body wasn't able to keep up with that. He, he, was, he was younger than his years until after he turned 80. And of course, the big thing he started doing in his 70s and 80s his last one being on his 90th birthday is he started jumping out of airplanes. Yeah, skydiving. Here we have a picture of him skydiving. It's quite remarkable. The man was, I mean, whatever you say about him, you're certainly in, in physically incredible shape and very brave. I mean, I guess as an ex-fighter pilot, that goes he, without you know, saying. He, and part of the reason why he wanted to skydive was because he had to parachute when he was shot down in World War II. And he sort of wanted a do-over. That had not gone well. It's, two crew members did not survive that crash and he had gashed his head and he wanted to skydive under totally different circumstances. So he jumped once and then he was addicted to it and jumped, I think eight times, but it, one of the reasons he also wanted to jump, he, he, one of his quotes about it was, I'm trying to demonstrate to old people like me, you don't have to sit in the corner and drool. You can just get out there and do stuff. And even Andrew, after he was diagnosed with Parkinson's and, and eventually ended up in a wheelchair, it didn't stop him. He still went to the ball game. He still went to the theater. He still, he, he, did he go through a little bit of an adjustment? Of course he did. But then he's like, okay, all right, I'm in a wheelchair, but let's keep going. He was amazing. It was amazing. And your book, uh, Gene, is amazing too. The Man I Knew, the amazing story, lots of amazings here, the amazing story of George H.W. <laughs> Bush's post-presidency. No one knew the story of that post-presidency as well as intimately as you. And, you. and you tell the story with an enormous amount of warmth and um, uh, and uh, and love. And I, and, I, and I really appreciate the book. Congratulations on the book and for the week you spent on the bestsellers list. 
which is is quite an achievement, uh, Gene. Uh, you talked about going on the road. Uh, we're thrilled that um, you are actually going to be in Miami for the um, the Miami Book Fair. Uh, you are just one of the many authors from around the world participating in the in the book fair of 2021, the nation's largest gathering of writers and readers of all ages. And uh, writers like Jean are looking forward to sharing their work, thoughts, and new ideas with everyone in person and online. Uh, to, to learn more about Miami uh, Book Fair, uh, visit them online or follow uh, MVF at, at Miami Book Fair. So that's going to be fun. I, I assume you're going to Florida or you're going to Miami, Gene, are you? I am going to Miami and I'm very lucky. I was so honored to be invited to participate in the book fair. It is a big deal for Is Jeff author. going to? I'm sorry, Jeb. Jeb is going to do the event with me. And I think because the great former governor of Florida agreed to do to do the, the program with me, I went from sort of a back in the back of the room, behind a curtain type of event to being on the main stage. They're really excited that Jeb's going to join me. So I'm grateful to the governor. Well, it's great news. And, I, and uh, I'd love to come down myself to watch you in action, Gene Becker. Uh, finally, Gene, um, as I said, your new book, The Man I Knew, The Amazing Story of George H.W. Bush's Post-Presidency. It was in the New York Times bestseller list. And uh, it's getting a lot of attention, even though it's been out three or four months. What else should people be reading, Gene, in addition to your new book? What books are on your bedside table? You know, what I, so one of the things I've discovered when you get a book published, everybody, right now I'm reading mainly galleys. People are sending me the galleys of their book and, and wanting my advice and my help in getting them published. And I'm honored to do that. I think I'm reading some good future books, but what I need to escape, I, my big escape author is, is Danny Silva who writes a wonderful series of books about an Israeli spy called Gabriel Alon. And Danny has written, he's, he's a New York Times bestseller. The, he and his wife, Jamie Gangel, very close to the bushes. Jamie's among one of my best friends. But what I just need to get away from it all, I pick up Danny Silva's latest and just sort of disappear into a spy thriller. So that's my big recommendation. If you haven't picked up a Danny Silva book, it's past time that you do. Well, Danny Silva is a New York Times bestselling author, and so is Gene Becker. Gene, congratulations on the new book, The Man I Knew. Best of luck with all the travel. Have fun in Miami. And we'll talk again, I hope, in the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much. I hope much. so. Come on down to Miami. It'd be fun to meet you. Come on down.